What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 125. I am one of your hosts, George Tarrant, alongside, as always, the man, the myth, the talent, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Spring has kind of sprung here mm-hmm. in Melbourne today. It's the warmest day we've had for a long time. Yeah, and, and um, of course, we cannot go out and enjoy it. <laughs> well, I sat on my balcony and ate beer. That's about as close as I'm going to get. Um, for at least another yep. six weeks because our government sucks. Yeah. They yeah. had two jobs and they fucked them both up. But anyway, um, <laughs> that said, you know, uh, reach shout out to our friends in the United States and mm-hmm. the UK because things ain't going so well over there right now. The difference is mm-hmm. they're like a bunch of people dying. Don't care. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's like, yeah. wow, we're not going to let that happen. So you've got to all stay home and do nothing. Yay. And yeah, I, so narrowly missed, I narrowly missed um, a tier two situ- situation at work. Um, it was, uh, yeah, so it was on my day off that someone went there and was like, okay, but well, that's good. I don't have to go and get tested. But For those who aren't close. aware, a tier two site in this state is basically... I'm not really exactly sure what the difference is, but like somebody with COVID was, you know, within sniffing distance of their location and you got to go get tested. You have to stay home and isolate until you get a result back, which is better than the alternative, which is yeah. you know, um, uh, a tier one site where if someone with COVID absolutely thought about going there and, you know, mm-hmm. um, no, they're actually in the location for, I guess, a long enough period of time where they're like, nah, everybody who was in that spot for that time has to now go home for the next two weeks. Doesn't matter how yeah. many negative tests you get, you got to stay home. So mm-hmm. um, that is the one uh, you want to avoid. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I think uh, the audience does need an explanation. Uh, hmm. What is going on over here? I mean, did you lose you a mean? bet? I um, did not lose a bet. I like it. Screw you. Um, why I always hate it? First, it starts off with death machine, then it just continuously escalates, and now it's personal jabs. Uh, like everyone's thinking, that. I was just saying what they were all thinking. Uh, we all know you've had. This is not the most extreme hair color deal you've had. You had the the uh, the two tone. Um, yeah. Um, red. But so I, I should note that he is nominally a bulldog supporter, and the bulldogs did have a win on the weekend, so they are. Uh, red white and blue but you know that'll do <laughs> well white skin blue hair red blood <laughs> there you go. So it's, it's all I about the english american french wherever <laughs> dutch russian exactly it's, it's uh, or from footscray almost as famous <laughs> please nothing anything but that <laughs> Oh, it was pretty um, right. so, let's, uh, let's do Charlotte. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, let's let's get on with the show, shall we? Let's. So last week um, we had the delight of watching um, her starring Joaquin Phoenix. Um, we had uh, basically an all-star cast, essentially, um, and um, I chose to follow on with The Discovery on Netflix, a Netflix original um, starring Jason Siegel, Robert Redford, our link, 
Um, uh, shit. Her name has completely gone out of my head. What the hell is her uh, name? Is it Rini Mara? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking Numi Rapace. Wait, is it her? No, it was Rini Mara <laughs> plays Isla in that film. So, you, yeah. so did you actually yeah, watch so the film? You might have noticed that uh, Numi Rapace wasn't in it. Yeah. I get the names mixed up on them sometimes. I'm not you know, perfect. I'm not I think where you're going wrong is that Numi Replace was um, in the original Girl for Dragon Tattoo, and I think Rini Ma was in the remake of Girl for Dragon that Tattoo. Could that could There's be your problem. It. Yes, yes, there we go. So, yes, we went on to the um, 2017 drama, pseudo-romance, pseudo-sci-fi, semi-science-fiction yeah, story of the discovery, which um, is set two years after the afterlife is scientifically proven. A man attempts to help a young woman break away from her dark past. This is an, this is quite a, a bit of a different movie to what we have both kind of generally agree with Netflix movies of the um, the bargain bin movies. This definitely still holds more of that independent movie feel. It's not got this, the same kind of um, production vibe to it as a lot of the other stuff. Like when you think of like sci-fi movies like uh, Bright, um, the, the Will Smith one from a few years ago. Or, or the, uh, the uh, Pat McCloverfield paradox. Yeah, those kinds. It, this has got, uh, it definitely feels a bit more um, of an independent movie because this wears its somberness right on the sleeve, right off the bat. It's a very melodramatic shot film. It's a lot of greys, very, very muted, dull colours, which makes sense given um, the world that it is presenting us. Um, and it starts off with a bang, almost literally. It's um, a interview with the iconic uh, Robert Redford and Mary Steenburgen is talking about how um, it's the effects of having it scientifically proven that there is something after death and how it um, goes on and how it um, has affected so many people who are now the suicide rate has just exploded because people are seeing it as a way out of their shitty lives or the opportunity for something better um and at the end of that interview one of the cameramen just up and thanks robert redford's character who plays as thomas and just shoots himself and then it cuts to jason siegel on a boat on his way to an undisclosed location um and it never really loses that bleakness does it? <laughs> it's certainly not an uplifting story. And in fact, oh, I think you should, you've got the, you've got, for a bit. Um, I'm here. Ah, cool. So are we having a delay at your end? There's a bit of a delay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, as I say, it is not an uplifting film. And in fact, I think you should probably whack uh, up on the bottom of a screen. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't normally do this, but I think we do need a trigger warning. Um, because there's going to be some fairly substantial mm -hmm. suicidal themes to this conversation. Because So that goes out to anyone listening to the podcast as well. 
you know, we have a laugh in the show, but this is a legit thing, especially in the world we're living in um, right now. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly fun. So um, you, you're right. From, from that, that first shocking scene uh, of, of uh, a cameraman basically shooting himself in the head in the midst of a, a television interview, uh, it doesn't pick up. Even as you sort of noted, the setting mm-hmm. of the film is shot on, it's shot on Rhode Island in the United States. And it has a grey, mm-hmm. a very wintry sort of tone to it. Um, so, mm-hmm. and that doesn't, and I should note, I fucking love that because that's my jam. Um, but um, <laughs> some people might find that uh, perhaps a little much for them. But I think it really suits the tone of mm-hmm. the film, which is not exactly an uplifting one. And it's, the film's yeah. greatest strength is its central premise, the central question mm-hmm. it asks, uh, which it does reasonably effectively um if mm-hmm. and this is a really wonderful way of doing it actually if it was an afterlife if we could you know if it would be you know categorically scientifically proven that there was something life of some description after death how would people treat that mm. um and i suspect yeah. this film actually takes a very realistic um black mirror-y kind of angle on that um, and says there would be yeah. a very large portion, I suspect, of people who would probably be interested in seeing if it's a better choice to go, you know, there's some, where they go next, um, you know, uh, then um, getting mm. there, I think, is the, isn't what the, the, the euphemism they use in the film is getting there, I think. Um, mm. and I think there probably would be a significant portion of people who would probably choose that. Um which uh, is really a fascinating philosophical point to pause on is to sort of go, what is it about our reality? Um, what does it say about our reality that, you know, you can quite easily believe people would rather, if they knew there was, you know, an excellent chance of life, they would choose to shoot themselves in the head or jump off a bridge or whatever. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on the outside chance that that is something worth experiencing. Um, mm, I think it's yeah. a fascinating question, and said the film does it pretty well. I really enjoyed the fact that they also explored the question very early on. Um, uh, Rooney Mara's character, uh, so we should give some intro. So, really, um, uh, <laughs> I, I'm jumping ahead, but there is actually a catch. One of the characters has a conversation with another. He says, "You know, people might actually start killing other people from a purely altruistic perspective." Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, by killing someone, I'm doing them a favor because I'm helping them get there. Yeah, yeah. It's it. It. I think what the this movie intelligently kind of skirts around um, specifics of what um, what it, there's there's no uh, religious association with the afterlife that they put on it. It is purely the scientific element of yes, there is something that goes on afterlife. And I think that's that's a great way of just opening it up so that it is accessible for anyone and everyone. Um, I do think that it overall actually deals with the harsh harsh source material of suicide and reasons why people choose suicide um, with a certain amount of respect as well. It's it doesn't trivialize anything. There's always 
um, justification for for everything that we see and the the actions that people have. Um, and I think that that is kind of an important thing to to put onto uh, when when talking about a topic such as suicide because it's intensely personal and I think everyone has this point of rationalizing it um, and doesn't matter what other people perceive that rationalization as it's just it, that person got to that understanding um, so I think it kind of applies a level of respect which is kind of uncommon in a lot of these things. It's often when you get these movies talking about the afterlife and things like that, there is, it either goes kind of like the flatliners route of going full Hollywood, just this bizarre thing that happens and it has nothing to do with anything, or it goes very, very religious. And I feel like this kind of dances nicely in the middle um, paying respect to, as you say, kind of that black mirror level of reality. So a bit of context for the story. Hmm. Um, our protagonist, as you sort of noted, is played by uh, Jason Siegel as Will. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you say, he's on a boat to an undisclosed location. Um, and on the boat, he meets Isla, played by um, Numi Rapace. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I quickly noted this year is this is the first, I think, and probably only serious role I've ever seen Jason Siegel in. The, the only straight ahead dramatic role I can remember him being in. And he does really, really, really well in this. Um, yeah, he's serious actor. very simple. Yeah, he's really, really. Um, it's not on the same level as like when Robin Williams took on a role. Uh, a serious role, but he just really plays it back. It's almost kind of like how um, how unusual it felt watching the Spanish Prisoner and Steve Martin playing that not lovable goof. <laughs> so like, okay, this is different, and he's doing rather well with it as well. It was it was a pleasant turn for for Jason, as you sort of say. He really does come across as a, and then he sort of said a subdued manner as a man who has. He's a bit dead inside, I think. Mm. Um, he's he's got a, 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 a deep core of pain and emptiness, I think, inside him, and we find out later on through the character's journey about why that is. But I think Jason Siegel mm. plays the character that way very well. And it is a shame you don't see a whole lot of him anymore. Like he had five minutes there, you know, twenty ten yeah. to twenty fifteen, where he was he was really really hot, you know, um, and probably I guess post How I Met Your Mother. Um, yes. and he's kind of faded away from sight. I mean, I'm looking now at his filmography. He has done a few things in here that are actually a little bit more serious, and maybe that explains it. Maybe he's just he's made his money yeah. doing shitty maybe. romantic comedies now, and he's just going to do stuff that is a little more interesting, interesting to him. Um, yeah. I also got opening of this film also had very serious um, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind vibes for me. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and that's not just because we had a very well-known comic actor playing a sort of a sad, serious, dramatic mm. role, but but also just the scene between um, between Will and Isla on the ferry reminded me very much of the scene between uh, Joel and uh, Kate Winslet's character Clementine uh, mm. on the train to Montauk, the start of that mm. film. Well, um, just the, the whole relationship is very similar to it. It's 
mildly antagonistic and like jibes. It, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and they, she sort of said they don't like each other very much. Um, and uh, I is the one who sort of has the conversation, so they're going, hey, you know, things, some people might start killing each other and, you know, considering it a favour. Um, Will is take, picked up at the uh, ferry by his brother. I think it's supposed to be his brother, mm-hmm. um, played by Meth Damon, a.k.a. Uh, Jesse Plemons, <laughs> um, who he, and they go back to the uh, wonderful mansion where um, Thomas uh, Redford has set up shop uh, mm-hmm. to continue his research and experiments into mm-hmm. the afterlife, now having moved on to uh, trying to create a machine that can record what happens after yeah. someone goes to the other place, for want of a better term. Mm. Um, and when he turns up, he kind of finds that there's a whole bunch of people there, uh, and he's kind of started his own cult. Uh, it's a little bit yeah. too <laughs> Yeah, it's um, – but honestly, the, the classic effortless cool of Robert Redford, it very much fits a cult leader because he is just – calm and cool and welcoming and friendly and approachable but very smart and he has this gravitas and you when he talks you do feel like you owe this guy a certain level of respect and admiration just i don't know what he's saying but i feel like i need to listen to him he's got that attitude and that's something that robert redford has always done he's especially getting into his old years taken on more of that kind of mentor kind of role and he tweaks it just a little bit to to make it cultish and creepy but also endearing so that you can't entirely hate him like there's there's no there's not really any villain in this um especially when it turns more of a kind of thriller element in the story in the so like the second half the, the last last third of the movie um again like i was saying before it, it gives kind of personal reasoning for the actions that happen and i think that's that's the number one mandate of this movie is personal stories for each and every one of them there's beautiful scene um between jesse plemons and jason siegel and they're just talking about how their dad robert redford just dealt with the death of their mum and didn't yeah um, and you get just these little wonderful little snippets of just deep character work. Even um, oh, the woman who plays Valerie, I think her name was, um, oh, Lacey, sorry, Riley Keough, um, she has just these lovely little moments throughout it that just add a little bit of authenticity and sort of justification to her actions through the movie as well, that it just... It's a very good character piece, I guess. What I'm saying. It is. At the same time, it, it manages to mix it up with its sort of science fiction mystery thriller elements. In the sense that, um, part way through the story, we, we we learn a little bit more about uh, the machine that uh, Thomas has built to record what happens at the after the afterlife, mm. and we find out that um, that Will has actually been sabotaging it. Uh, mm. It's such a bad idea that he sabotages it. But in doing so, finds out that it actually works. Yeah. We sets him off on a course to try and track down 
they actually steal a corpse and record, you know, some 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 uh, what if we think is you know the afterlife, and they set them off on a bit of a a bit of a mystery, a bit of a hunt to try and figure out you know this man's story um, mm. to try and verify what they're seeing. You know, is it reality? Is it a memory? What is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's and there's actually a, one of my favorite parts of a film is when they come to the conclusion and he tells them, "Hey, it works." Mm. And the three of them actually, so Robert Redford's character, Jesse Plemons, and Jason Siegel's character, all look at each other and go, "We've got to destroy this thing. No one can find out this works." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a really nice moment where the film goes to a fairly inconvenient place for its story, but at the same time goes with your logic is to go oh fuck if people knew you know not only could they scientifically prove it we never say exactly what how that is but they can see you know video or recorded of where they're going after you know fuck forget about it right like why well, yeah. it would be it would be a you know global catastrophe yeah. um so so that's a really it's really nice the film actually thinks about what it's going to do and that you'll be right mm. film has thought about it and gone okay yeah this is a logical step for it to take and as you say mm. we're kind of being set up all the way through a film for robert redford to be the bad guy um mm. you know to be yeah, a villain of some kind but this is the moment where you realize he's actually not a villain he's just a scientist he's just curious mm. um which is probably a good thing for most scientists one would imagine to ask yeah. questions and investigate things and but um in this case he's he, that's all he is and he's not actually doing it for any kind of personal gain or to you know he can actually see the consequences of his actions and and you sort of go mm. okay well he's not a bad guy here so the bad guy is the situation mm. and it does give you the kind of the double bluff as well there's there's a point where um jason and jesse's characters are talking and as Jesse Plemons' character, Toby, I think it is, leaves, he's he throws the line away of that always comes round. He always does. And so often in that kind of, in, in Hollywood movies, that kind of line leads to, okay, he's going to go full bad guy. It's that, that red herring, but they're sort of like, no, he, he actually does come round. He does come round to it. He sees the magnitude of what he has proven and um, he he does the, in my personal opinion, he does the more honourable, righteous thing of attempting to destroy it um, at, at a point where it actually does give him almost a, a level of closure for the shit that he's working out with as well. So it's it's a nice way of kind of him buttressing up against a wall that in so many stories the the scientists would just slam through it and keep keep on going and it would just balloon out and get more ridiculous this he actually he reaches the line and stops and i think that's um i think that's an important message to actually have in movies from time to time of knowing the limit and as you it's a, it's it's kind of unusual that the film doesn't take a an easy way out it takes a, it's a more challenging interesting way out I'm very surprised mm. at how poorly rated this film is. Uh, it has a 54 on Metacritic, but mm. it's drastically low. Like, it's not a masterpiece. It's not perfect. But um, it's certainly mm. better than a 54. Um, some people just maybe were having a bad day mm-hmm. or Netflix forgot their check um, for the uh, reviewer. Um, 
for their brown paper bag of cash wasn't around the back for them to give it a fresh rating like some films get. <laughs> um, but it has an audience score of 6.3, which isn't, well, it's probably closer to a mark than a 54, um, but probably doesn't quite read it. I, I was really impressed by this, but where I think people may have, may have lost people is with the ending. The ending does get... Mm. Okay, so you should put the spoil. Well, do you want to put spoilers up? I can spoil We're trying to spoil it for you. Um, it's a couple of years. Ago. Spoilers. Um, there we go. The twist ending, because yeah, you kind of knew. I, I was curious. I was sitting there watching a twist ending and going, "I bet George figured this out beforehand with his superpower." Did you? Yeah. Yes. As soon as soon as the first thing, as soon as, soon as it cuts to Jason on the ferry at the beginning of the movie, it's like, okay. I see where this is. This is a loop. Boom. In the first scene. Yeah. What gave it away? Um, water is always regularly used as something to elicit flow and flowing of time and things like that. It is, it is a symbol of that. But it's also the fact that everything in that scene is designed to posit the what if question. Uh, him turning off the the TV, him choosing to go and have a conversation with Isla. It's and then everything from um, interactions with her in the car park. It's all about the what if, and it's like, okay, they're going to come back to this. They're going to revisit this. I can see what they're going to do, and they did it well. But I spoiled movies for myself. <laughs> you do. You do. I was going to criticize you for that, but then again. I, I do it. I, was, I saw it. One of the films I'll talk about a little later on, I found myself doing it um, mm. less successfully. Um, anyway, so, uh, but I was like, as soon as I saw the anime, I guarantee you George has ruined this movie for himself. Uh, I wasn't quite picking you would have done it during the first scene, but, you know, you would have done it anyway, so you might as well get it out of the way quickly because uh, I didn't. I was, I, was, <laughs> I was busy enjoying it. Um, fortunately, I didn't have that. I, I still enjoyed it. I still very much enjoyed it. Yeah, because you must be used to it now. Because you've always had yeah, this for your whole life. You always you can just still enjoy a film despite <laughs> you know um, knowing what's going to happen. Um, I found the ending a little confusing. It was a little bit rushed. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't a bad ending. So Missy George has indicated we find out at the end of a film, Jason Segel's character has been dead the whole time. The the sixth sense ending, um, and that what we've experienced has been his afterlife, um, and that the insinuation is the afterlife for each person is kind of a quantum leap type situation where you're put back into a yeah. part of your life where you have to work through a situation until you resolve it, at which point, mm -hmm. don't know, but, you know, that's that's the movie. Mm. Um I think that it overall it earned the ending that it had, but I think that it did also try and just push a little bit beyond its means. And I was saying earlier on about uh, Thomas kind of hitting that line in the sand, so to speak, and just not pushing through it. I think the movie itself tried to be a little bit more intelligent than what it had set itself up for before, but at the same time, time i don't know quite how they would have they could have finished this movie any other way um 
but it didn't shake the movie and didn't ruin it for me at all. It was just, it, it just felt a little strained. A little bit. I, I just sort of found myself going, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're saying a lot of things very, very, mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you needed, they needed to slow that whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Massively slow it down. Because, like, mm-hmm. it was very easy. For, I'm, I, I'm guessing, okay, it's a looper. He's dead. I got it. But, like, you're saying all these things very, 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 very quickly. You're throwing information at me. And it's like, fuck, we've run out of money. Finish. <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. it was... Um, it's never make- a good sign when it's a big exposition dump. And that was essentially an exposition dump at the end of the movie, which that's that's never a good sign of good storytelling. Um, no. Um, it's... Yeah. What do you make of all the stuff of a little boy in the beach and all that kind of bizzo? Um, I think that that was the most ham-fisted kind of element of the movie um it makes sense to a point but i don't know if they really needed it um i found it again like mm. it was maybe one idea too many mm. it's mm. balancing a lot of ideas I had a lot of balls in the air um mm. And it did it pretty well. Yeah. It was sort of being hinting at all the way through. But it just kind of, this kind of the idea of it. So it was one of the subplots is that he talks about when he was a young boy, having had a near-death experience, and, you know, he saw mm. somebody else when he was in, you know, when his heart had stopped or whatever. And it somehow indicated that, that what he was seeing was Isla's son, who he is there at the end of a movie or something. Um, I found that whole thing confusing and uninteresting and I didn't get out of anything to the story. Yeah, I think it muddied the waters when, as you say, they were juggling a lot of balls already and they weren't exactly helium-filled balloons that they were juggling. This is about suicide <laughs> and this is about the afterlife and in a twisted way, alternate realities slash timelines. Those aren't exactly easy balls to juggle at the best of times so i do feel like it it made the movie work harder than it needed to i think i I agree it did it didn't didn't add much but yeah Yeah. i I think this is possibly the best netflix movie i've seen um, it's it's a step. What what made you pick this? Was it just you hadn't seen it before? Was there something about it that interested you? I hadn't seen it before. Um, I love Robert Redford as an actor, and Jason Segel. I've always enjoyed him in his comedy stuff, and um, he's always someone who tr- in the in the stuff that he writes and produces, he always tries to put something a little different on it. So seeing him in something that's a bit more independent, that that idea. Um, pleased me as as a concept but also the notion of um suicide and the afterlife that's something that i write about in my stuff and i'm uh you know i've i have a lot of thoughts on suicide as well having had those thoughts myself and kind of worked through a lot of that a lot of times it's it's a topic that I think needs to be talked about because there's still so much stigma about it so having a movie on a mass platform like Netflix, I feel like it was uh, 
it was a worthwhile personal kind of connection for me as well as just being a movie that I hadn't seen. What do you sort of know there? It's like one thing when you're dealing with American films is there's a great deal of self-censorship in American mm. cinema these days in the sense of things mm. you can and you can't do. So mm. you could, it's very difficult to make a film that's overtly critical of organised religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of a thing like The Golden Compass. Well, a film wasn't necessarily actually mm. critical, but the book it was based on was. Mm. Um, and so that film got absolutely chopped off at the knees from being the next mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, despite being a pretty good movie, um, mm. because all the religious nuts over there said, so don't go and see it, it's anti-religious. Or um, the Darren Aronofsky Noah film, I, I remember that was a lot of um, a lot of blowback. I know a friend of mine in the States, who just happens to be a Trump supporter, mm. um, yeah, shocking, I know. Uh, said she wouldn't go and see it because her pastor had told her it wasn't biblically accurate. I'm like, what the fuck was that mean? Like, do you think you really built a boat? <laughs> um, so, you just want to see I, the bouncer on that boat. It's like, is your name on the list? <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> unicorns, fuck off, unicorns. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, when I was in the States once, I'd go past a billboard for the Ark Experience where the Australian guy. Ken Ham actually has built a life-size replica of the actual Noah's Ark. It's in Kentucky. Um, I, would, I would love to go there one day. Um, but it, it, it's difficult. Even that film wasn't particularly overtly anti-religious. It was just not quite what the uh, religious right in that country, a little bit more challenging than, say, Passion of a Christ. Um, so this film is dealing with, as you sort of noted, it deals with the topic of suicide quite heavily. And as you noted earlier, it does not deal with it in remotely a religious way. Religion doesn't come into this at all. Yeah. So they very delicately step through that minefield. Mm-hmm. They're not being overtly anti-religious. So I guess maybe the religious folks might think it is because it doesn't talk about heaven. Um, <laughs> but, well, yeah, um, I'll leave that for them <laughs> to criticise. But at the same time, they can be incredibly, I'm criticising, yeah, our American friends, we're just as bad here, but they are very moralistic about things. Mm. Uh, hence, talking about something that's distasteful, suicide, pretty controversial thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, yeah. this film has um, delicately tiptoed through and got a very interesting story on the books about that topic, or at least deals heavily mm. with that topic. And you have to wonder... If we didn't have Netflix, something like this almost certainly would never have been made. I feel like it probably would have been made um, because, you know, the the, the trailer for this um, is sort of like shows that it got some laureates for, for some independent movie um, premieres, and I think it was one that was purchased later on by Netflix for distribution. So it was going to be made, but having it... I think being able to get something as sensitive of a subject as this on film and picked up by a mass distributor is rare. Um, I mean, you can just ask any independent movie maker and they're desperate for people to see their movies and getting it up on Netflix or Amazon or any of the platforms is a big boon. but I think that it's important for challenging cinema to still exist in the mainstream in some form or another. Um, 
that's one of the things that I have problem with with all the purchases that Disney has, and there there's talks that Disney are going to buy Sony Pictures so that they can get all the Spider-Man rights and all of that stuff. It's uh, homogenizing the cinema industry, oh. and um, it's going to breed vanilla cinema. Well, in, in some ways, we have uh, sometimes I think the same thing. If you're talking you know, the big studios, we have less voices than ever before because we're at better mm. three now. Um, um, but at the same time, we actually, I would think, uh, one would probably argue we get more voices now than ever before because you've got, you've got those streaming services gagging for content. Um, so, you know, you got Netflix, Prime, um, Disney, it's called Lump Disney with the rest of them, but, you know, you've got Hulu in the States, Paramount Plus in the States, mm -hmm. Apple, they're all mm -hmm. doing original content, sometimes mainly TV, but some feature films mm. in there as well. So there, mm. if you've got a half-decent idea and you're moderately talented, I think your stuff, you have a better chance of being, your stuff being seen now than ever before, uh, no matter what Disney does. That's that's fair. That's fair. I I do still also think that most most of the time, um, the studios, regardless of whether they are for your classic cinema release stuff or your digital platforms, they are just getting more and more laser focused on finding the next big thing. Well, that's and certainly true. That's certainly true. I mean, that that, that's... that, that is the di difficult balance that they have to work out. Um, I, I, you know, I guess it probably helps. It's a little bit like music. Like a few years ago, um, I remember when Radiohead put out their album and they said, pay whatever you want. And people, and it turned mm. out when they were giving their album away for free, they actually made a shit ton of money because in, by able to do that, they were able to cut out the record company. And so even yeah. if only 50%, <laughs> even if 10%, I don't know how many people paid the money for it. All of that money went to Radiohead. Yeah, none mm. of it went to a record label. So even, you know, Get saving ninety percent of people paying nothing for their record or whatever it was, um, they still made a very reasonable amount of money. Archimedes, come on, there you go. There's our co-host. He's being restless tonight. Um, so maybe it's the same sort of thing here in, in, in a sense that, but that what sorry, what I was going to say is that that where that ended up was that it ended up benefiting established acts. Um, mm. probably most of all, if you are a Radiohead, if you are a Nine Inch Nails, you can. You can afford to put an album up, yeah. For free, it's so going to pay whatever you want, or you know, free. But you've got to pay me. Here's all the extras. You want the vinyl copy? You want the deluxe box edition? People are going to yeah. do that if you're in a Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails. But if you're Joe Blogs and the Blogsters, right? You just you know play you know uh, independent band kicking around. No one's ever heard of. That's not going to really work for you because you've got to you know, eat, mm -hmm. um, and no yeah. one's going to pay extra for. You can't afford to create it, the extra packaging or you know whatever it is. So uh, maybe yeah. it's the same sort of thing here in cinema. Whereas the free music thing kind of did end up benefit having a benefit to established acts. If you're an established filmmaker, if you're a Martin Scorsese, if you're a, uh, mm. for, you know, a Quentin Tarantino, if he decided you know after ten films he doesn't want to do features anymore, he wants to do I don't know TV series is this. And mm. he puts himself out to market there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a mm -hmm. an Amazon or a Netflix would pay to produce Quentin mm -hmm. Tarantino's first original TV series or whatever yeah. it is he starts to do next? I mean, the guy could basically name his price. 
You know, if, if Chris Nolan decided he wants to start doing something in streaming, I think I, he might have read that he is. Um, uh, you know, those sort of guys can command a, a premium. But if you're yeah. straight out of film school, yeah, it might maybe it's, it's just as hard as ever. Yeah. Right, so that's our thoughts on the discovery on Netflix. Available now. Check it out if you're um, not too sensitive to hard subject matter. Um, but um, Travis, the keys to the kingdom are yours. What are you taking us to next? This was a difficult choice in a way because there's a lot of different ways out of this. Um, mm -hmm. um, I have to go. No, no, <laughs> I don't do that. Not unless you break the rules. You know, oh, fuck off. No, the rules are, and they're not to be broken. Um, <laughs> I um, I've um, I've decided to follow Robert Redford, which is, okay. you know, um, because mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to. Well, you know, we, we looked at some fairly recent films, so I thought this at least open up the the spectrum to some older stuff. I did consider <laughs> sticking to something in the last 10 years. And I did actually very much was very, would have been very curious to hear your thoughts on all is lost, um, which is okay. a film from 2013. We're not going to do all is lost by the way, for one reason. Okay. There's nobody else in it except for Robert Redford. It's literally just Robert Redford on the screen <laughs> for, for an hour, 46 minutes. <laughs> and that's what makes it wonderful. But, You'd have the director as the only way out then, and that would be a little bit hard, even though he has done some interesting stuff. But um, mm. I, and that would, it would be, you know, be a little bit limiting. We'd be kind of painting ourselves into a corner a little bit here. So I've um, I've decided to make life a little easier for you next week, and but at the same time, keep up the quality. I think um, okay uh, with you know um, something that I, I um, is very highly lauded and something that I haven't actually seen before myself. So we're going to have a look at the 1980 Oscar-winning classic, Ordinary People. Oh. Um, directed by Robert Redford. Um, mm -hmm. It is a, a, a drama. The accidental mm -hmm. death of the oldest son of an affluent family deeply strains the relationships amongst the bitter mother, the good-natured father, and the guilt-ridden son. Now, okay. I should note, this is not the kind of film I would normally choose. There's absolutely mm -hmm. nothing about that synopsis that says, wow, you're going to enjoy this film. Um, but it does have a 7.7 .7 out of 10 on IMDb. It has an 86 meta score. It won four Oscars. Mm -hmm. um, I think this show is good for nothing if we're not challenging, you know, perceptions occasionally Absolutely. as well as I have audience. not seen this movie before either, so it is a great opportunity. It is available to rent on your Amazons, your Googles, your Microsofts, your YouTubes, your Fetches, your Apple TVs. Of course, Apple charge extra before you experience, you know. It's um, because it's 10% more sweet than the next leading brand. I was going to say, yeah, um, Tim Cook comes on the screen first and jerks you off before you get, that's your extra dollar worth there for Google, for Apple. Like, <laughs> seriously. pay Apple. more for Tim Cook to not touch their junk. I think it's actually, I think it's because it's in HD. It says it's in HD. <laughs> So maybe that's why um, HD costs extra. Um, but so it's here. It's available to rent around a place. It should be fairly widely available. And as you have a quick look at the cast there, some pretty well-known faces in there, you know, Donald Sutherland's and that kind of thing. So I'm sure you'll be able to figure out something interesting to do with that. 
I've already got an idea of where I think I want to go. Um, yes. Yeah. So you're be um, back. back. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a quality production here. So you know. Um, yes. It, it's yeah, it's um, going to be good, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be it, good. It, look. It's, it's, this is a, a classic, I think. So um, you know, Robert Redford is a decent director. Um, mm-hmm. I, so yeah, we'll yeah. Feel free to watch it. One best picture, by the way, and best director in 1980. The Academy usually has something interesting to pick. So, you know, that yeah. said, they did pick Shakespeare in Love, but yeah, don't mention the war. <laughs> they also pick Forrest Gump over Pop Veteran. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that rounds off our chain movie of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Travis has had difficulty finding. Um, access to the latest What If. So I'm just going to give like a brief little um, thoughts on What If right now. No spoilers, nothing at all. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but this one is um, focusing entirely on Stephen Strange and the possibility that the title is What If Stephen Strange Lost His Heart Instead of His Hands? And it's an interesting um, hypothesis and the way that it presents it, it's almost ends up being a what if in a what if episode. Um, it deals with um, the notion of loss in overall a, a good way for an animated, primarily focused for kids show, because um, it is a tough subject matter for, for some, for, for sure. It, it'll be challenging to watch. I think this one is going to be um, quite a dividing episode, um, but it does also further highlight what we've been talking about in the past episodes about the animation of this. And the animation is very, in this episode, more than any other, it highlights because there is a lot of difference between these quieter kind of uh, conversation moments and then action sequences. The animation is designed, the look of it is designed to make the animation action look good and it does look really good. But um, in those quieter moments, in those more story beat moments, it is ugly, frankly. It is an ug- ugly looking <laughs> animation style, which is a shame because what they are trying to do in this grows like what we've seen in the first three episodes the maturity of what how how they're utilizing this what if scenario is is good i i approve of it so um i can't wait to hear what you think about it next week rose and anyone else i do recommend you watch it but if you have young kids that you are going to watch this with just be cautious because it does deal with the the notion of loss in in typical ways and Hopefully, it's a little bit of an indicator of what we might get kind of tone-wise for Sam Raimi's um, take on Stephen Strange as well, because it does take a darker turn. Um, but I think overall, it's another good one. It's another win. Good deal. I look forward to it. It's what you yeah. get when you don't have a Disney Plus subscription. Um, <laughs> again, I will not. We will not pay for another subscription. Um, <laughs> there are too many of them. Please remove three. Um, <laughs> we're after. We talked about Paramount Plus last week. What a what a, what a temptation that's been over the last week. You know, watch uh, no, some new really episodes. Like, when you actually what, look at the content, no. 
<laughs> New episodes of iCarly. How could you say that? Quite easily. <laughs> um, I think it's time for a word from our sponsor. Yes, our sponsors. Our sponsors. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to use the code when you check out with any of these adverts on their website. Is to armchairs21 and you'll get yourself a 76% discount. Um, but we've got a few sponsors this week. Um, so um, we will just be back. It will be a few sponsors. This, um, this, um, this broadcast is brought to you by Furniture World. Enjoy. Furniture World. Thank Furniture you. World. And we're going to go over here. And... <laughs> and Furniture World Supermarket Saba, one of the largest furniture retailing and manufacturing organizations in Victoria. Over two acres of high-quality furniture and bedding on display. Lounge suites, bedroom suites, kitchen and dining settings, wall units and occasional furniture. Also a large range of office furniture. All at heavily reduced prices. No reasonable offer refused. Furniture World Supermarket Sabo will offer you six months interest-free terms, bank card, plus free delivery anywhere in Victoria. Furniture World Supermarket Sabo, the name you can trust. Furniture World Supermarket Sabo, Frankston Road, Dandenong. One kilometre past Dandenong Town Hall, just off Princess Highway. Phone 7913522. Call and say hello to Dave and Mabel at Furniture World Sabo. Hello, Pocky. I've got the blues on my birthday. And they're the best things I got. They're fast, furious, fascinating. But wouldn't you like to take a closer, more revealing look? Now, page by page, week by week, the world's most exciting aircraft, past, present and future, are examined in amazing detail and brought to life in the most comprehensive publication of its kind ever compiled. The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Aircraft. Don't miss part one, on sale now. If you thought the latest top quality men's fashions cost an arm and a leg, take a closer look at Roger David. Take a closer look at the style, at the fabrics, the workmanship. Take a closer look at Roger David's range. Comfortably affordable fashion you'd expect to pay a fortune for anywhere else. If you thought the quality and fashionability of our menswear was less than the best, just because our prices are so low, take a closer look at Roger David. Sabo, the largest name in furniture, with over 30 years' experience in manufacturing of high-quality lounge suites, invite you to call and purchase your furniture at near wholesale prices. Save by buying direct from the maker. Over 40 different designs and 200 different fabrics and colours to choose from. Saba will offer you six months interest-free terms and free delivery anywhere in Victoria, plus a five-year written guarantee. No reasonable offer refused. Saba, manufactured for your comfort. Saba, the largest name in furniture. Available only from the new three-and-a-half-acre Saba Furniture Exhibition and Sales, corner Frankston and Greens Road, Dandenong, Furniture World Supermarket, Saba, Frankston Road, Dandenong. Saba, a wonderful world of furniture, open daily until 5.30 and till 9pm every Thursday and Friday. Ah.
ISD is first for sport. Hurry into the Melbourne Sports Depot Elizabeth Street for your sporting needs. Adidas Summit Jogging and Training Shoes in Burgundy. A great sale price, only $19.99. Converse Nautical and Deck Shoes. And we are back. And we're back. <laughs> All right. That was the, uh, if you're looking for a green velour couch, Zabba mm -hmm. Furniture World is the place to stop and have a look. And I know Zabba I'm in... will accept any reasonable offer. Any reasonable offer, uh, especially $982. So that's going <laughs> to go down very well. For that green velour couch, you've always wanted to would do need a new couch. So um, that'll, that'll work out well. Yes, 76% uh, discount down there at the uh, Saba Furniture World and Furniture in uh, Frankston. Uh, mm -hmm. Just uh, make sure you lock your doors before you get out of the car. It is Frankston after all. <laughs> make sure when you get to Frankston, you don't get out of your car and you drive on. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of the end of a world. So um, <laughs> there's a great line right. in... Um, uh, on, on, the, um, on the beach, the uh, 50s film mm. shot here, and they're like, oh, I live in a little village down the coast called Frankston. <laughs> I like the other line about the production of that. So, like, if you're going to shoot the end of the world, Australia's the place to do it. Melbourne <laughs> in particular was apparently the place to do it. Apparently that's apocryphal, though. That is the word in the street. It was made up. Uh, apparently Ava Gardner didn't really say that. Um, uh, yeah. So I am told. Well... Now, I wasn't there, believe it or not. I wasn't born. No, you were not there. You were not even a twinkle in the eye. My dad might have been three years old when they made that film here. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, shall we move on? Let's. Okay. Where are we going to go to? Do you want to talk about the secret in their eyes or shall I do my just my roundup for brand new cherry flavor? Uh, let's talk cherry flavor. I know you were really impressed by that last week. Mm. Yeah, so I finished watching um, season one of They Certainly Leave It Open for more seasons. Um, didn't end how I thought it was going to end. They took some good twists and turns. I didn't predict the ending, so that's that's impressive. I will definitely give them points for that, for sure. Um, overall, everything more or less stuck the landing in a Twin Peaks-like manner. Um I think it's worthwhile a worthwhile show. I think it offers something a little different. It blends a little bit of the the younger generation witchcrafty kind of thing that's been very popular in shows like Sabrina um, and like the the originals and those supernatural kind of shows where they've brought a little bit more sex and su subtle erotica to things that is. This is not an erotic show at all. Um, in fact, it very much um, trivializes and just makes everything a bit creepy. Um, but it's got, you know, the attractive young young lead. It's got um, a lot of stuff just playing with that. There's always this slight air of sexuality to it because it's all about power plays. And I find sex power, uh, power sexy, <laughs> you know, Powerful people are sexy. <laughs> can't can't deny. Uh, it. You heard it here first. He found Donald Trump sexy. Well, if you want an imprint on the cushions <laughs> after pounding from the, the um, yeah, 
Now, Henry Kissinger was fond of saying a power was the world's greatest aphrodisiac. And if you've ever seen a photo of Henry Kissinger, you'd know he knows exactly. You get to find out firsthand about aphrodisiacs. Um, <laughs> Anytime, sorry, as soon as anyone says Harry, Henry Kissinger, I think of the Futurama version of him. <laughs> He's just awful. <laughs> uh, you can't take Nixon seriously after zombie Nixon. Riddled with phlebitis. <laughs> <laughs> but back on to brand new cherry flavor. Um, I really did enjoy it. And um, it's definitely got room and growth in the story and development to warrant the uh, another season if they wanted to do it. But at the same time, it's kind of cool if they do leave it just the way that they leave it because it's like, okay. And then they, w they went off. And it, I think that kind of really epitomizes a lot of the um, the artistic industry in LA where people will come in, they will have that blast of five minutes of fame, 15 minutes of fame, and then they disappear. And there's always that story of where are they now? And it would kind of fit with the, the character of LA that they portray in the show. But I do recommend this show if anyone is interested in something that's a bit twisted, a bit scary, um, supernatural elements, great performances all around, and largely very entertaining as well. I think they're probably worth mentioning, as you said last week, it's some pretty disturbing shit happening in this show, though, right? Uh, yeah, there's some pretty fucked up stuff, um, like vomiting kittens, uh, as, as in vomiting up kittens, not kittens vomiting. Um, there's like beheadings, there's blood magic, there's sex magic, there's uh, it's just and, and there's like um, a, the uncomfortable, it does very much play because it's a period piece, it's set in like the 90s, um, and it's very much the attitude of one of the producers in the in the show. Um, they very much play into the the sexual predator atypical role but the shit that his life gets burnt down around him even that that's kind of brutal and it, the, even the characters themselves do posit the question have I gone too far and um, I think it balances rather nicely it's, it's entertainment first and foremost this is not a genuine appraisal of sexual pred uh, predation in the movie industry or anything like that um, it is using that as a catalyst for something else. Um, so its primary focus is entertainment rather than education. But it does the entertainment very well and it makes you feel uncomfortable with the bits that you're supposed to feel uncomfortable about where they are very much still problems in society today. But I enjoy it. They probably just to be, want to be careful of again if you have young kids. Yes. Um, or you are of a particularly sensitive disposition. Um, mm -hmm. This is maybe one that, despite George's strong uh, endorsement, might uh, not tick all the boxes for you. Um, yeah. You might be wanting just to go, go and watch another episode of A Good Place or something. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of A Good Place, um, mm. I watched the latest episode of Nine Perfect Strangers on the weekend. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of people being really critical of this show. They are wrong, mm -hmm. and I don't know what they're talking about. Um, unless they've seen more episodes than me. Okay. Yeah. The reason why I'm saying it, uh, it speaking of a good place, um, there is a common uh, actor 
in uh, that show. We talked about it last week, actually. I think he was. Is he in uh, Cherry New Cherry Flavor? He might have been. Anyway, um, we, we we mentioned that last week. Oh, uh, yes. yes, yes, he is. Um, <laughs> and um, um, he plays Yao in um, uh, the actor's name, but anyway, uh, yeah, he plays Manny Jacinto. He plays Yao in mm. uh, in Nine Post Strangers. Um, ironically, he's Filipino. He keeps getting mm-hmm. stuck with his. Uh, Asian other Asian characters, but they, um, the uh, I won't spoil it too much because we're it's hard. To, I'm probably going to come back to this probably at the end of the eighth episode rather than give you a week by week update. Other mm-hmm. than to say that if you've been put off by the bad reviews in the newspapers to say it's not good, I've got absolutely no idea what those reviewers are watching and, and how they're making up their minds that the show's no good before the end. It's still okay. fa- it's fascinating. Um, there's some revelations in episode four. Uh, take this story in some interesting new directions and really o- open the story up a little bit more. And we learn a little bit more about some of the characters again. Um, it's not giving us any easy answers yet. But then again, it's an eight episode run. What eight episode hmm. run would be giving you answers in episode four? I've got no fucking idea what the newspaper reviewers are on about. No, oh, it isn't telling us anything. You know, it's still asking questions. Of course, it's still asking questions. We're halfway through the series. Um, <laughs> so, again, I'm I'm just blown away by the level of the acting on 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 um on display here. Particularly standouts mm-hmm. in the show for me: Michael Shannon, Asha Ketty, and Bobby Carnavali, who are just blowing me away with their their performances okay. in the show. Um, Nicole Kidman is phoning a whole thing in with a really bad Russian accent and some really bad, oh, yeah. some really bad Botox and, and, and plastic surgery. Like she should just let nature text course. No, you know, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't hold us, it doesn't hold us back from this being something. It's they just keep planting little seeds going, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to give them a treatment, you know, little things. And you're like, I'm really excited to see the next episode. So, um, if you be, as I said, if you've been put off by the bad reviews on, in the newspapers, um, um, tell them to go and get fucked because it's got a 7.4 <laughs> on IMDb. I'm really liking it. It's, it's now this is going to contain, this is all going to hinge on one thing, though, is the ending, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's all well and good to set up. We've all seen it done a million times. Let's set up a really mm-hmm. cool, mysterious premise, lots of, you know, enigmatic characters doing enigmatic shit, and then. No, I don't know what's going to happen at the end. You know what I mean? Like we do a lost, you know, where we don't tell you anything or. Oh, we don't know what they're, they're doing. We don't know where, where they are. And the writers are going, shit, neither do we. <laughs> uh, or what was that? Wayward Pines. You remember that one? Um, uh, from a season season ago, one was great. Season, season one was two. great until the end. And you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, and then season two was just a <laughs> yeah. Best not mention that's like possibly <laughs> the worst season two. The worst season two of a great. There follow a great season one since Heroes. We're gonna go over here now. Yeah, it's just awful. But yeah, um, if it if it doesn't if it has an ending like that's gonna ruin the whole thing. But we don't know yet because we haven't seen. At least I haven't. I mean, unless the people writing the reviews in the papers have, and it sucks. Um. <laughs> You know, it's based on a book at least, so it's not based on, you know, what Damien Lindelof had for breakfast yesterday morning and shout out today, um, you know, which, which I think is actually how the last few scenes of the lot <laughs> yeah, of written. Screen ideas, script ideas from the series. 
I, I think that's, I think that's how Damon Lindelof came up with the script. There's a message um, in my alphabet. <laughs> I would just turn a can of alphabet soup upside down and then we freestyle it. Um, <laughs> it's not, so it's got an actual source material. I haven't read the book, but like, I recommend if you've got Prime, check it out. If you don't mm. have Prime, it's in Australia, of course, and you want to sign up for a free trial, because we're going to be here for at least another month, people, at least here in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's something, you know, you've got four or five, five, five episodes to be up by now. So there's a little bit of content for you. If you're in the States, uh, it's on Hulu over there. I don't know where it is everywhere else in the world, but, you know, I'm sure it'll be on a streaming service. Now you, or you could just torrent it because, let's face it, uh, the actors have already been paid, you know. <laughs> I think my payment was actually going to Byron Bay in the middle of a pandemic, so it looks incredible, frankly. Like, it's a, I found myself watching this overnight going, I want to go wherever that place is. It looks cool. <laughs> and you know me, I don't like the countryside. Nope. That's true. The times that you have been to the countryside, God has tried to smite you. <laughs> well, yeah, tried is the operative word. It's true. He can't stop us. <laughs> All right. So that was an update on um, Nine uh, Strangers. So uh, where do you want to go now? Do you want to talk about uh, secrets in their eyes? I'm going to talk a little about secret in, their... in the building. Yeah, the secret in their eyes. So. Um... This is another one of these. We did this a few weeks ago where I did a side-by-side and we talked about an Argentine film I watched called uh, Nine Queens, which had been nominated for Best Foreign Picture. And then it was remade in the States a few years later as Criminal with starring John C. Riley. So I'm going to do that again. Um, so I was put onto Secret in Our Eyes, which is the latest film in what I'm calling the a DCU, um, the Dain Cinematic Universe. Um, because this um, stars uh, Ricardo Dain uh, in the star role. If you don't know who that is, he's the Argentinian George Clooney. Uh, he was the star of Nine Queens, which yeah, I just mentioned. Uh, he was in uh, Heroic Losers, which I saw a couple of months ago in a cinema. Um, mm. Seems kind of a distant memory again. Um, and I was put on the list by my girlfriend, Michelle, who has Argentinian heritage, who is busily writing at her psychology essay, this evening on wisdom and she should be working and not well she should be listening to us obviously but you know it's probably more constructive too she's doing some work so you know good luck um with that um so but she did put me under this film the film did win the academy award for best foreign picture in 2009 uh the secret in her eyes a retired legal counselor mm. writes a novel hoping to find closure for one of his past unresolved homicide cases and for his unreciprocated love with his superior, both of which still haunt him decades later. Um, and I don't think there's any exaggeration here to say this film is a flat-out masterpiece in every step of a way. Okay. Direction, writing, cinematography, the acting's choice. Um I don't think it, it's rated 148 in the IMB 250, top 250, and that's well deserved. Um, ironic, I think the IMDb 250 is actually probably a very good measure of, of the quality of a film, right? You don't just sneak in there, but not too much shit in that top 250. Um, so essentially, we saw Ricardo Dain stars as Benjamin Esposito. He was a like a, a prosecutor or a investigator for the um, uh, legal counsel, they call it. Called quite figure out exactly the nature of his 
profession. He worked for like the, the, the DP, Department of Public Prosecutions, that we might call it in Australia, or the district attorney, the American might call it. You might need a little bit more familiarity with the Argentine legal system to exactly locate his job, but he was kind of an investigator kind of guy. Um, and uh, one of his uh, jobs when he was actually in private event, when he was a, a legal counsellor, was to investigate a, a rape and murder of a beautiful young right. woman in, in Buenos Aires. Um, and uh, it's called the Morales case because the, the uh, deceased's uh, surname was Morales. And the first thing you think of usually when the wife gets murdered is it's going to be the husband. But mm. this film goes a different direction. It turns out her husband, played by Pablo Rago, he played his mm -hmm. uh, Ricardo Morales, is absolutely heartbroken at the loss of his wife. They they can't don't really have a a, um, a whole lot of trouble finding out who it was. They quickly find out it was a a drifter slash construction worker um, called Isadora Gomez who was living nearby. But he somehow slips their grasp. You know, for a series of okay. misadventures, he manages to slip away uh, before they can before they can arrest him. Um, and they're okay. unable to sort of locate him after that. This moves into one of the most beautiful scenes in a film I think I've ever seen. Um, where one day uh, Benjamin Esposito, Ricardo Dayan, is going through a local train station and he sees uh, Ricardo Morales sitting in the in the foyer of a train station. And he goes over and talks right. to him, you know, reintroduces himself. He's, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm looking for the killer. And he goes, you know, uh, I'm, I've come here every day for a year to look at the faces to see if I spot the killer. Um, and it's just, it's, I'm not doing it justice to say, but like, this is, you know, this, you know, it really touches uh, Benjamin Esposito as well. And he's like, I've never seen such love for someone in somebody's eyes before. Um, but he, and the, the chase for the killer sort of continues on. So we've got this two track story at the same time. We're flashing forward to the future where, you know, 13 years later, um, uh, Esposito has started writing this novel about the Morales case. And he's now revisiting his old colleagues, having retired some years before, um, including the uh, his former boss, Irene Menendez Hastings, played by Soledad uh, Villamil. And I'm probably mangling that pronunciation, so I will apologize. The chat to is ablaze with insults for your pronunciation. So she'll be listening too. She's a regular listener, I'm sure. We're big, we're very big in Argentina. Um, <laughs> I assume she's Argentinian. I don't actually know. I should have checked that first. Um, yeah, yeah, she is. She is Argentinian. Few. Um, so uh, he's visiting them, and sort of he's decided he's out to write this novel, and he's sort of waking up the case again to try and chase down his story. Sort of, sort of digging up that dirt of the past. Um, okay. Now, so it's 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 got a bit of time jumpy. It's got some it's got some romance elements in there. It's got this uh, police procedural element in there. Um, it's got some serious questions about crime, punishment, and what justice is. Um, you know the nature of love, and you know the, the, the nature of loss for the, the husband whose wife died. Uh, it has the best foot chase scene I have ever ever seen in cinema history. Period done i haven't seen a chase scene wow. like this before it is brilliant uh it is to foot chase scenes what the rate the car chasing bullet was a few weeks ago it's that good um oh shit yeah it's it's brilliant the, the camera work is insane um 
the technical details of this film are insane. Look, uh, so we, we spot between, you know, the uh, jump back and forwards for, you know, 10 years or thereabouts between, you know, when, when the murder takes place and the older um, Esposito having written his book. And I think that rather than using any of the uh, Marvel de-aging technology, which we see so popular today, they've kind of done the opposite, mm -hmm. actually, and they've gone, uh, they've aged up Ricardo Day in with, you know, some makeup to make him look older. And the same with Soledad mm -hmm. uh, Villamil when when he goes back to visit them. Um, and Pablo Rago as Morales, he's, he comes back into the story later on. And the makeup, I mean, I, how often do you hear me talk about the makeup? Like, you just don't. Like, I'm, I'm too stupid to, to notice things like makeup, you know. That just goes over my head like, oh, it's explosion, it's good. <laughs> that's about the level of detail you get from me doing film reviews. That's trust me. But, you know, um, but the makeup in this was insane. Like, you, you, it was so seamless. Like, you're cutting back and forward. But you, the, the film didn't need to be like, you know, ten, meanwhile, 10 years later, um, you just knew from what the film, the, the way that they looked, that you were now seeing older versions of the same characters. And that seemed incredibly natural, and mm. uh, it was done beautifully. Um, and I can't imagine this film was done on a great budget either. Um, I don't, I don't know what a, a budget of a, a film in the uh, late two thousands. Here we go. An estimated budget of two million dollars. Um, how much? It's it's scandalous how good this film is for two million dollars. Like a film looks like it look. I was going to say it looks like a million bucks. It actually looks like two million bucks, but um, you know, it, 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 you know, a significantly more expensive Hollywood thriller would be very, very happy to look this good. So I can't recommend this film highly enough. I don't want to give too much away because I would very much like our friends out there who are listening uh, to try and find a copy if they can. Mm. Um, I can tell you, if you're an Australian listener, you're just going to have to steal it um, because mm -hmm. it's not available to stream in Australia. Um, maybe you might find a shiny plastic disc somewhere. Don't know. I had to use, I had to play a shiny plastic disc in my Xbox the other day and I realized it didn't work. So, um, you know, um, uh, <laughs> that's not, <laughs> it wouldn't play the audio. It was really annoying. Huh. Pl okay. Play the menu audio. When I started the movie, it wouldn't play the movie audio. Um, so, you know, um, okay. uh, I, it's very, very frustrating. That is that, that's your thoughts on the original. Gonna say, now, so it's, you said it's, that this was a, a, a two-for-one deal. You watched the remake. I've done a side-by-side. Side. This was remade hmm. um, so in 2015. How much, this review, how much of this review reflects in the remake? Not much. Um, oh. So uh, it was remade in 2015 in the United States hmm. um, as a secret in their eyes. It's funny. It's got a very high-profile cast. So we have mm. Chiwetel Ejiofor uh, as Ray mm. Carson, who is essentially Ricardo Dain's character. Uh, mm -hmm. Nicole Kidman as his boss. So Soledad Ville, you know, whatever her name was. Um, uh, we have Julia Roberts as Jessica Cobb, essentially mm -hmm. filling the role of Morales. We have Dean mm -hmm. Norris shortly after his fame in the course um, Breaking Bad. Alfred mm -hmm. Molina, Michael Kelly. You know who Michael Kelly is? Look him up. You know his face. Um, yeah. He's in things. And, um, yeah, he's always the bad guy. Uh, so really high really high profile, high profile cast. This film mm. is made for 10 times the budget, so almost $20 million. So actually it's probably pretty cheap, really, considering you've got, you know, two Oscar winners. In, 
in your in your starring roles in Kidman and and, and Roberts there. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they're part little bit, a little bit past their probably their mm. you know their best work. Mm. So very high. Pro- the thing is, I'd never even heard of this film before. I didn't remember it coming out um, at, back in the day. So it didn't get a lot of publicity. I really remember the name and the poster, um, but I certainly never watched it. I don't really do Nicole Kidman stuff anymore. She's not really pushed herself in it a long, long time. That's a um, good point. This is written yeah. and directed by, well, obviously the the adaptation was written and mm. directed by Billy Ray, who's not mm. a bad director. He wrote uh, Captain Phillips, Shattered Glass, the first Hunger Game film, Dark Fate, Terminator, let's not mention that one. Um, uh, he he also did overall a lot of good writing stuff. Mm. But he did also do Gemini Man and Terminator Dark Fate. I wonder so which, a bit which, which Gemini Man he did, right? Because like Gemini Man had been kicking around Hollywood for a long time. Um, That's very fair. Uh, he did direct also the TV miniseries The Comey Rule, which was the, mm. um, the, the adaptation of James Comey's book about Donald Trump, which we talked about on the oh. show probably about a year ago, which I really liked. Um, mm. and so not a bad director either, but this the adaptation it's a little bit like criminal i mean um when you um it's it's, it's an interesting to, to can't really get into it here because i'm we probably don't have a time and i'm not the right person to do it you pick up a story out of its original cultural uh, context and whack into a completely different culture mm. i don't know that it makes sense anymore mm. so everything about this story mm. made sense in argentina in the time period in which it was written for example, mm. uh, I'll give a little tiny spoiler here. At one point, the killer um, actually becomes, um, I guess, a part of the military junta or associated with the military junta who took over Argentina in the 70s and 80s, which, you know, um, proceeded to turn into the dirty war, which, you know, people were just disappearing left, right and centre, being thrown out of helicopters into the, Arden, the Atlantic Ocean. That really happened. Mm. Um, but he becomes a thug who's associated with them. And, and he actually becomes a genuine threat. So it sort of goes, he goes from the hunted to the hunter almost. Um, mm. And that's a wonderful little, little, little twist on the story. But mm. you really can't really do that when you pick it up and it's out of Argentina and stick it in America because they didn't have a dirty war. So mm. um, that story, that kind of loses its power. It kind of just doesn't make sense anymore. So the, the remake kind of feels like two episodes of Law and Order back to back. Um, okay, so we kind of have, you know, it's like a two-parter, maybe like a special edition of Law and Order. Um, did, did Siri decide to answer me? Yeah, Siri just started for some reason. <laughs> She's always had a thing for me. So, not um, about secret war in America. <laughs> it um it, it really doesn't doesn't really so this one's set in the early two thousands against the background of the the war on terror. Okay. Um, it's a slightly different story this time. Um, there, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor plays a FBI officer, and he's associated with the local DA's office in LA. Um, okay. and they're investigating a mosque. Uh, so this is set maybe a year after year and a half after nine eleven. Um, and okay. In this case, uh, they are called to a scene of a murder next door to the mosque, and the person who was murdered is uh, Jessica Cobb, a.k.a. Julia Roberts's daughter. 
And that sets in motion the obsession and the story to try and, because he is friends with Julia Roberts, to try and track down um, the, the killer. And, and this the same sort of story plays out uh, to a degree. Okay. With some unnecessary Hollywoodisms. So Michael Kelly's character mm-hmm. in there couldn't quite figure out who he was supposed to be. Yeah, you know, and you're kind of going, okay, well, look, you know, he's Ricardo Dean and Nicole Kidman's this person. But like, who exactly is he supposed to be? Um, and yeah, some of the conceits of his character don't make a lot of sense. Um, Dean Norris is really good value, but he's supposed to be a comic relief character, sort of. He plays a character in the originals called Soledad, and he's kind of get he's homogenic. He's kind of he works in the office as well, uh, in the uh, 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 prosecutor's office, and like he'll answer the phone with funny things. Like the phone will ring in the office, he'll be like, "Sperm bank deposits." Um, <laughs> um, like, yeah, no, wrong number, goodbye. Um, and they try and pull the same kind of gags of him. This doesn't really quite work as well here because they're like a prosecutor's office in the United States and they would be like totally professional. So it's mm. just another thing that doesn't quite click and make sense. The um, mm. the chase scene, I have the chase scene here, and they try and reproduce the chase scene. Here it's a, it's a soccer game. In um in the original instead of baseball game here, which yeah, obviously right, yeah, makes sense, but yeah. again, ten times the budget looks nowhere near as good, nowhere near as good. Like, uh, it's yeah, it's like a photocopy of a photocopy. So, yeah. uh, one thing that does interest me is there isn't the ending of these films is possibly the most effective part of it. And again, I I don't want to spoil it in case people out there want to see it. Yeah. I'm going to save it. I would be fascinated. It'd be really hard for me to get a copy to you because you can't get it, right? But I would love to see you to sit down and watch it just so I could see for one reason. You might enjoy it, and that's good. But I would want to know whether your superpower tells you what happened. That would be the one thing I'd want to know. Is it because, like, I didn't. I, 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 was, I, I was sitting down, as I was saying earlier, like, I was watching, thinking about it, and I was watching while well, I was watching it going, I think this is going to happen. I think something's going to happen with this character at the end. Mm, what is it? What is it? And sort of going through the the possibilities in my head, and I didn't pick what had actually happened. So, okay. um, but in hindsight, though, it's very nicely signposted throughout the film, and it makes sense. Mm. Um, but yeah, you'd be curious if you could you could tell. So the one thing that makes it it's 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 possibly the most effective. Really ties a bow around the film. So I obviously knew because I watched them both on Sunday. Um, mm. I obviously knew what happened at the end and the American version obviously took the ending and ran with it. If I didn't know what happened at the end or I saw the American one first, I wonder if my opinion might be a little bit more favorable. Mm. Um, yeah. And I suspect, I suspect it would, I suspect it would. I think it's a solid fit. It's a, I'm criticizing it very hard because the original is a masterpiece. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen Gus Van Sant's Mm. Psycho. Yeah, the one Vince Vaughn. It's fine. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Gus Van Sant's a competent filmmaker. He's not Alfred Hitchcock. No. <laughs> and and it's kind of unnecessary as a movie. Kind of unnecessary. Like, okay, yeah. just remake it. Shot for shot. It's an interesting experiment. But that's all it is. It's an experiment. <laughs> this isn't necessarily an experiment. But I wonder if, like, yeah, if you saw the re- and. and no one's saying that Gus Van Sant can't make films. It's just like, I don't, doesn't, yeah, no, no, it doesn't make sense the same way. And so here I'm like, I guess it makes sense because almost nobody in America would have seen this story. Um, and yeah. it was a cool story. Um, mm. But they've kind of 
they really haven't nailed the landing on this one. It's but if you okay. had gone out and you gone turned up at the multiplex in 2015 to see a film and this was on, hmm. you probably would have been probably pretty satisfied with it, I would imagine, if you didn't know there was a significantly better version out there. Um <laughs> Uh, I would, yeah. It's it's difficult to sort of to square that circle. To go, it's, it's competent, but it's nowhere near. It's nowhere near what the original achieved. And mm. as I said, if you can find a copy, please watch it. You you won't regret it. I did actually recommend it to a friend of mine this week. I sent her a trailer, and she said, "Ew, who's got time for subtitles?" Um, this is the same person <laughs> though who we are who was shocked last December when I told her that. Uh, I when I told her that I heard Driven was a terrible film. Remember we watched Driven? No, was it just me who watched Driven? Um, uh, I remember telling her that I, I'd heard the alternate title for Driven was to replace the N at the end of that word with an L. Um, and she was shocked and appalled. She said, I love the movie Driven. Driven's a great movie. <laughs> I'm like, maybe, maybe if you actually gave some time to the film with subtitles, you would realise that Driven is not a good movie. I think... If we have a, yeah, I think that if there's a third scenario where where they say something is good or something is bad and it is diametrically opposite, it is time for the name and shame game. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. That's uh, to people over belt. Um, <laughs> it's a bit over belt. So look, I mean, this one is, on the other hand, significantly easy and unsurprising is significantly easier to find. You can rent it and that kind of thing on your streaming services. I think it's actually on Netflix. So, um, you know, if you're really, well, really what curious. What I shall do, I shall watch the 2015 version before watching the original, mm -hmm. see if that changes the, the palate taste of it at all. I would be curious, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, look, I mean, oh. Yeah, I, I, it's it's. I, we, I'm going to continue going down the Argentine rabbit hole again soon. So, if you're enjoying it, let me know. If you know of a film from that part of the world I haven't watched it, you'd like us to watch. Get in touch. Let us know. Okay, lovely, lovely. All right, that rounds up um, the secret in their eyes at one twenty six. Lovely. Now I'm going to talk about a new series that has just literally just dropped onto Disney Plus, and this, this is Steve one. Martin, it right? Yeah, this is creative. I'm curious about this. Martin, um, it repairs him with one of his best friends in um, Martin Short, and you also have Selena Gomez in the the third point of this uh, this triple threat show. This is an interesting one. When I first heard about this one, I thought that was it was going to be an interesting concept. And Steve Martin has done some interesting stuff, particularly in his later years, um, embracing the aging of him. Um, I'm thinking like Shogun, uh, Shotgirl and things like that. Um, he's an accomplished writer. He always um, tries to do unusual new things. Martin Short being thrown into the mix is, I feel like he's very much a love him or hate him actor. And when he's on, he's really on. When he's off, he's really off. Um, so it's a bit touch and go whenever he's involved with something. And then throwing in the unusual connection of Selena Gomez with these two much, much older generation 
comedy legends because they they are comedy legends. You kind of think, okay, how the hell is it? What what style? What what genre is this going to be? And on IMDb, it's got this listed as comedy, crime, drama, mystery, and thriller. And the first three episodes have released, and I've watched all three, and they're they're relatively short episodes. They're um, I think about thirty five minutes long each, or something like that. It's not a long. It balances those genres rather nicely. It starts off um, just introducing these three characters and their personalities very, very clearly. Um, Steve Martin plays uh, Charles Hayden Savage, who is a former um, successful TV um, detective, um, uh, 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 Brazo, sorry. And um, he's talking and waxing lyrically about New York and, um, and gets stopped by these people. And this guy just sort of like starts going, oh, you're that guy. He's like Brazos. Yeah, Brazo, me and my dad used to love watching you. He's, and then the, the guy just goes off on this tangent and starts talking about how his father basically has no memory, is difficult to breathe, he's in a home, and it, everyone, everyone in his family wishes that he would just die because it would be more humane. And it's like what the hell? And Steve Martin's character just goes, oh, would you like a picture? And so he goes, oh yeah, great. And then they flip it straight away. So, and then the, the the guy talking and his girlfriend, they pose and Steve Martin's character is like, oh, I thought you wanted a picture with me, but sure. And he just takes a picture of them. It's just kind of an interesting take of a character and subverting expectation. And we get introduced to Martin Short's character, who's Oliver Putnam. He's um, basically a washed up theater producer and director. Um, and he's very flamboyant and living this life. And they're all in this one building called the, um, I think it's called the Arcadia or uh, Arcadium. Um, it's sort of like very deluxe apartments largely. Um, he, his character is shown as like being much more upbeat and positive about the world and kind of going off into these flights of fancy. And then he just gets honked at by a car and it's like brings him back down to earth. So you get an idea of how he perceives the world and what kind of character he is. And then you have Selena Gomez, who's dressed up as typical young woman in New York. And so she's saying, everything's about me and everyone's looking at me. Whereas the other two have very much depicted that, no one looks at them anymore because they're old, because they're forgotten. And she is this young, attractive woman and all the guys are talking to her, all the girls want to be her and all of that stuff. Um, and there's an element of, there's an element of the Rodriguez Tarantino four rooms kind of thing going on here. Wow. Um, because it basically all takes, uh, takes place in this hotel and the catalyst for these three very obviously antagonistic to each other characters getting together, we see them all share an elevator going up and it's awkward and Martin Short is trying to engage conversation between the two of them and no one wants to have a bar of it. Um, they are all fans of a podcast, a real life, uh, a real crime podcast thing. And... Um, it has the voice of Tina Fey as the narrator for the podcast. And then the power, um, someone pulls an emergency fire alarm in the building. So everyone has to vacate. 
and they all bond in this booth in an apart uh, in a restaurant near the apartment and they're all kind of talking about it and getting excited going back to the apartment they find that um someone has died in the building um a man by the name of tom kono who you get a brief shot of in this one scene where all three of the main characters together he gets in the elevator as well and he's very much depicted as an asshole. Um, and these guys all budding independent detectives because they've got this uh, true crime bug and they decide to try and investigate because the police are saying, oh, it's just a suicide. And they keep on having these little ideas of why. And Martin Short decides he wants to try and make a bit of money out of this and he starts recording everything to make his own true crime podcast. Um, it's an interesting show. I don't know if I like it yet. It's mildly How many episodes funny. have you watched? I've watched three. You know, thir- about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. But each. you don't know if you like it yet. <laughs> it's, it's endearing. I am a big fan of Steve Martin. Um, so I'll always try and support him where I can. And the thing that makes this the thing that makes this show kind of difficult to recommend is that at every single turn, it subverts your expectations and narratively storytelling. That's really bold, really brave. They do it all really well, but it is also kind of frustrating. Um, and the, the slows, like a, the, the metaphor of peeling away the layers of an onion keeps coming up, especially in the first two episodes. Um, and that's what they're doing throughout this. And they do, they're doing it really well. You are learning a lot about these characters. You are finding these endearing elements about them and you do start to care for them. But at the same time, it keeps on turning left when you're expecting it to go right. And it it plays with that so liberally, so frequently that you kind of constantly felt like a little bit off balance. And not only is it doing that just narratively with the way the story is going, but also with um, the genre that they're playing with. Like there's scenarios where they're talking and then Steve Martin finds a cat frozen in a freezer. And it's really funny, but at the same time, the, Sort of the build-up to it has been this. It's been an unusual kind of jumping from genre to genre to genre in the same scene. It's like, okay, I really don't quite know where we're at with this, but I'm kind of enjoying it. The characters are more or less enjoyable, and I do want to see what happens. And the premise is really good. And the, at the end of the, the episode three, we are introduced to Sting, the actor, performer, the icon Sting. He lives in the apartment block. And um, it's going to be curious to see how that comes in because I don't think I've seen him on a screen since the last time I watched David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> um, and you I'm curious seen, to see he, was in, he was in Firewalk of Me, wasn't he? David Bowie was in that. Was he not? Was he not in it as well? That was Bowie. That was Bowie. Yeah. I don't sorry. think it was. I didn't see him in it. Okay, no, I'm obviously wrong. Yeah, it was Bowie. It was Bowie. Um, so it's got a lot 
of interesting things, but I don't know. I, I feel like this is going to be an ep- a, a series which to get a genuine feel of how successful it is, you're going to need to watch the whole show, which is going to be an, a put off for a lot of people. So I don't see this as I, I doubt that it'll be successful enough to get a second series if that's what they're hoping for. But I think that it could end up becoming a bit of a cult hit for people who do watch to the end. And if they do keep the quality going and they do manage to tie everything together and bring everything to a a successful ending, it could be really good storytelling because it is just doing something very different. And because a show like this is coming out on Disney Plus. Granted, it's on the Disney Star, the more adult side of things, but it's still an unusual take. Um, and I do appreciate that, especially coming from Disney, having something that is more of a risk. It's not your typical show. It's not your typical... Like, Steve Martin and Martin Short have not really been big-name movie stars for decades at this point. And they've given them a show. And that, Just I, to I note, this was made for Hulu, not Disney. Um, I know they own part of Hulu. <laughs> um, it's weird though, right? Because like other things that are made for Hulu are showing up on Prime. Like mm. um, Nine Perfect Strangers is made for Hulu, but that's on Prime. Um, so it's kind of hard to draw a line for it. So that would probably explain it because it wasn't Disney who made this. Um, exactly. It was yeah. it, Hulu is a separate entity, which is mm. you know, mm. um, has a different a different identity than Disney Plus. But obviously, yeah. you know, with their Disney stars service now, they might tend to, you know, leverage that relationship they have with Hulu to actually pick up more of our adult-oriented stuff um, to, to fill the gap in between seasons of uh, The Mandalorian. Yes. Um, but so, so taking all of that into account, I really don't know if I would recommend this show because – three episodes in and I'm still unsure on it. It's endearing enough, but there's plenty more to, to watch and to spend your time doing. So I don't know if, I don't know if I can recommend it yet. Hopefully by the end of the season, I was like, yeah, this, this is awesome. It ticks every box. It does really well, but that's a lot. That's a big time investment. Um, And most people won't have that kind of dedication. They'll just try once and bounce. Um, it's probably worth noting that you're probably in the minority on being mixed or lose. It's just the people who are rating on IMDb, at least. Uh, it's got an 8.8 mm-hmm. 8 out of 10 on IMDb. So the people who wow. are bother- bothering to rate it, as you note that the people who do vote for shit on IMDb necessarily aren't always the best measure of things, but they like it. Um, and, uh, you know, um, in terms of, um, the critics, uh, I'm not sure, but, you know, um, it's, uh, I'd be, I'd be curious to see, you know, what the, um, uh, what the long-term future of this is. Cause I mean, it looks like something that's quite interesting. I'm, I'm keen to take a look and, uh, Mm. as we've noted, I will not be, um, (laughs) buying a subscription to Disney plus just for this. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, (laughs) uh, there was a connection actually because there's a guy in, uh, we talked about in the and um who was in Mannequin Two is in this series. Oh, uh, shit. So I can't remember the actor's name. The guy who plays Herman in Herman's Head, um, 
Oh, um, the the main guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mannequin on uh, William uh, William Ragsdale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in one of the episodes. Um, and he plays yeah. the character Herman from Herman's Head. So at least the character's got the same name as from Herman's Head. So <laughs> assume it's a gag. Um, just to be clear, according to Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 100% critic rating and 99% audience rating. So um, George can't recommend it, but I think those numbers, people should give it a go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise those numbers. Wow. Okay. Um, it's, it's, so, I, I really appreciate it for it because it's trying to do something different and that is rare in this, uh, this industry. It, <laughs> by no, but, and by no means am I saying Rotten Tomatoes is something you absolutely have to rely upon. I think it's just if something gets that kind of consensus, because, you know, you'll get sometimes you get like, you know, 90% like they, all the critics will say Star Trek Discovery is genius, but the audience hates it. Or, you know, the vice versa, you know. Um, yeah. your, the critics didn't like um, Alita Battle Angel very much, but the audience enjoyed it. Mm. So, um, but to see 100, almost 100% across the board, I think that's probably a, a heads up, but this is something that critics and the audience are relying on. Worth having a look, yeah. especially if you have a Disney Plus subscription. Is, you're yeah. not going to pay extra for it. So, um, I will say the um, Martin Short in this show over the first three episodes, he shows so much much depth and range and gravitas in his role. I can't help but wonder what if he had shown more of this in earlier in his career instead of just focusing on comedies like he so so liberally did. If he had taken on more serious roles, because his character in this has got wonderful depth. And um, Martin Short just really, really plays it so heartbrokenly. And you just, you really feel for him. And it's absolutely wonderful. He's a genuine, I feel, I feel like he's a genuine missed talent. Uh, he didn't do the Robin Williams thing of doing those dramatic or chilling roles. Cause I think that he would be fucking terrifying in a, in a straight bad guy role kind of thing, or a, or a, a killer or a psychopath role. He, the, the range and the depth and the performance that he puts on in this is genuinely impressive. Probably shown it before. I think they film like, um, uh, in a space going back a very, very long mm. time now. Um, he, he was almost leading man in that. Like, I mean, and mm -hmm. while he wasn't a bad guy by any stretch of imagination, it was certainly a step outside the, the usual comedy, you know, stuff that he was known yeah. for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just it's like that, that kind of role that you suddenly go, Shit, really? That's Martin Short doing that? That's Ned Needlander? What the <laughs> It's it, it's just such such a wonderful change of pace for him, and the the facade that his character puts on through this, whenever he's in a in a public place when he's not on his own, is very much what you see, um, what you have seen of Martin Short in so many of his movies and so many of his cameo pieces. He's loud, braggadocious, flamboyant. Um, but it's those moments alone that just you suddenly see this 
deep, deep, mournful um, entity that's so much more interesting. <laughs> uh, it's a candy reminder of, of you know, that um, these actors are still really talented guys and they shouldn't be forgotten mm -hmm. just because, you know, they're in the, uh, you know, the, the latter stages of their life. They're still... Yeah, you know, uh, can produce really, we, and I think that's true of a lot of the films we think you talked about. But it's a Redford from a film from three or four years ago, mm. um, you mm. know, and he was he was great in that. So you know, um, don't write people off if they if they want to keep working. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If they're willing to push the boundaries and show new sides of themselves, hundred percent. Let let them do it. Um, and I'm. I'm curious to see, I hope that this continues the with the quality level that it is on display here because it is something really special. I just personally, the way that it tells stories, I don't know if I would recommend it, but that's not a denouncement of negative things at all. It's just, I don't know how many people are going to love this. So it's, it's just a challenging well, watch. 99% of people apparently. <laughs> Um, 99% of the audience have said they like it. They're only so, three people. <laughs> um, again, these are the same people who, you know, um, who voted for um, Ghostbusters as being a freshly rated film. Um, and these are the same critics who think Star Trek Discovery is good. So take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> a lot of people think it's good. George, not so much. I, I'm I'm leaving judgment for how how good it is going to be. You're right. Sometimes yeah. it's, you can't. It'd be difficult. Like a little bit like me and Nine Perfect Strangers, which by the way has a 59 percent uh, critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So, um, that's um, yeah, that should be taken. Maybe they should stop the, the ratings. <laughs> well, it has a 63 percent audience score. So apparently, I'm in the minority. Well, sort of. Really minority, but not so much of the audience as uh, like as much as um as mm -hmm. much as they do um Ernie Murders. But um it's it's certainly as I sort of said earlier, I'm going to really comes down to how Atlanta sticks the landing. If it can stick the landing mm -hmm. with a decent ending to the story the uh, uh, story is telling over a series, then you know, overall I think you can really take it to another level by the same token, doesn't matter how good some of these mystery you know, stories are, if the ending's stupid. I mean, yeah, go yeah. back again to Wayward Pines. I was so entranced by Wayward Pines. And yeah. then the ridiculous ending, you're like, oh, sorry, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, for, for, for a lot of shows like this, it so much of the show does end up just, can they stick the landing? And if they can't, it sours everything. If they can, it elevates everything. That's the... I guess that's probably one of the reasons why we don't get too many shows like it because it is a gamble. Um, and I feel like, like a show like Loki, for example, they, tr they attempted to do something similar and to a, to a certain degree, WandaVision as well, where they tried to do different forms of storytelling. And for, for you and me, WandaVision was great. And then they did not stick the landing. Um, and it, it soured it quite a lot. Um, for Loki, for me, it's, it tried and it didn't it didn't destroy the um the series like the ending of wandavision did for me but it still wasn't enough and it was more 
the same problem that weighed down Age of Ultron, where they're serving too many masters and going, yeah, you've got to you've got to forecast everything else that's coming for the next five years. Sorry, tough luck. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm, I'm going to take a look at it. So I, we had to give our, hopefully give people yeah, a little bit of an update on what I think of it next hmm. week. Right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think that brings us to the end of the show. Um, sure. A relatively short one for this one. But um, brisk, brisk episode this week. Brisk, hour 45. But we talked about this week's chain movie, which was The Discovery, which is available on Netflix. And we both recommend that with the warning that it has got um, very, very tough subject matter. Um, so just if you are of a sensitive disposition, Please be careful. Make sure that you are looking after yourself first and foremost. Um, Travis has chosen to follow Robert Redford to his directorial Oscar-winning movie, Ordinary People. Um, I gave it a little bit of a tease for this week's episode of What If, which we will go into more detail next week when Travis has watched it. Um, we had a little bit of an update of mine on brand new cherry flavor on Netflix, which I do recommend. Travis talked about The Secret in Their Eyes, the 2009 and 2015 remake version, and certainly the original, as is so often the case, was the preferred choice. And lastly, I talked about Only Murder, Only Murders in the Building. Well, we had a bit of a packed show, but we got, kept, kept the pace going. <laughs> well, we try to keep the cram it in for you guys. Like, you know, we watch it mm -hmm. so you don't have to. Exactly. But I think generally this week... <laughs> Everything that we've watched, we recommend. <laughs> oh, you're a bit iffy about um, a bit iffy in the last one. So we're not we're not all you know. It's not all sweetness and light here at our end. That's true. That's true. Well, if you're in Australia, if you're in lockdown, it's definitely something to watch. It's not wasted time. We have oh, you've got something better to do. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. Next week, ordinary people. What If, as well as a plethora of uh, probably more Argentinian movies. And um, if, you're lucky. if we're lucky, yes, because so far they have been um, tray good. I am picking the good stuff, though, right? I'm not exactly going to see, you know, uh, I'm not actually exactly picking out, you know, the um, Andy Samberg, Adam Sandler, you know, the grown-ups version, you know, that Jack and Jill, We Are Your Time version, you know. You do need to find one of those. You do need oh, to okay. find one. Okay, done. We'll, we'll work on that. <laughs> sure you will <laughs> on that note ladies and gentlemen thank you very much we'll see you next good week good night